0: To set the stage, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross as we turn our focus back to the book of John. We are in John chapter 17. And uh, this is hours before he gets betrayed by Judas. He just told his disciples that he was going to go away. When you read the portion of scriptures, he says, I'm no longer speaking to you in a figure of speech. I'm now just going to tell you the way things are." It's quite interesting how the book of John just escalates in intensity all the way to the cross. And when you study the Word of God, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, from beginning to end, there's a cumulative effect. It's an amazing thing how filled of, full of doctrine the book of John is. Now, the first three Gospels are very historical in nature. They tell the whole story of the star in the east and the wise men and Jesus, the little baby, being born. But not so with John. John dives right in to doctrine. In the beginning was the Word and he echoes Genesis and he shows how the very Word of God became flesh and here he is now moments before the cross and he tells his disciples that he's gonna to go to go away to the Father and that the Holy Spirit will be sent to them and that in that day when he leaves and the Holy Spirit comes in that day they will ask him nothing this is our first note for today you ask Jesus for nothing he says but you will ask the Father because now you have access to the Father you are now part of the priesthood that can enter into the very presence of God and now you ask the Father in Jesus name you stand before God as perfectly as Jesus is that's the way you stand before God and you ask God in his name for what you need and he will give you that of course we have to interpret scriptures with scriptures. Because elsewhere it says, you have not, why not? Because you ask amiss. You have not because you do not ask. So yeah, we have that. If you don't ask, you don't, you don't get. If you ask amiss, you don't get. But you have to ask in Jesus' name, according to His will, and the Father will give it to you. So let's walk through this chapter of Jesus' prayer, because that's what it is. One step at a time, and we'll see how Jesus prays for himself, and he prays for you and me. This is his prayer for you and me. It's also known as the high priestly prayer. He says in John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Jesus here was totally aware of the fact that it was time for him to go to the cross. Nobody took his life. It was time for him to give his life. He says then, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son, speaking of Himself, so that your Son, Father, may glorify you. This is amazing. You see, the glory of one person of the Trinity overflows to the other two. Within the Trinity. When we submit, in other words, to Christ, we are submitting to God the Father. You see, when Christ is glorified, God is glorified because they are one. In other words, when you submit to Christ, when you obey Christ, you are obeying and submitting to God the Father. There is no division within the Trinity, they are always in unison. They are one. To be led by the Spirit of God is, in fact, to be led by Christ. When you follow the Word of God, you are following God's wisdom. To honor God is to honor the entire Trinity. And there is a doctrine called divine simplicity, and we've touched on it in first and second here, but this doctrine of divine simplicity develops the idea of God being one within himself. Many times people see God as though he has these different attributes connected to him. You know like Frankenstein. He has kindness added to him and he has sometimes gives kindness and he has grace added to him and he sometimes gives grace and he has goodness added to him and sometimes offers goodness. And he has all these things connected to him He is God, and He has these traits. But the doctrine of divine simplicity shows that to not be the truth because we ought not to view Him as such. He isn't God who has mercy. He is God who is merciful. He doesn't have love. He is love. He defines what love is. He is forgiving. He is all of His attributes. I would like to read to you an explanation of divine simplicity by uh, Kevin DeYoung. He says this, and I quote, The simplicity of God is an important truth few Christians think about anymore. By simplicity, we do not mean that God is slow or dim-witted, nor do we mean that God is easy to understand. Simple as a divine attribute is the opposite of compound. Simplicity... The simplicity of God means God is not made up of attributes or of many parts. He does not consist of goodness plus mercy plus justice plus power. No, He is goodness. He is mercy. He is justice. He is power. Consequently, we ought to not suggest, for example, that the love of God is the true nature of God, while omnipotence or holiness or sovereignty is only another attribute that he does possess. This is a common error and one which the doctrine of simplicity would have us avoid. He says this, we often hear people say, quote, God may have justice or wrath, but remember, he is love. You see, the implication is that love is more central to the nature of God, more true true to his real identity than other lesser essential attributes. But this is to imagine God as a composite being instead of a simple being. Very important for us to understand this, that God's justice is who He is, and His justice is His love. God's love and God's wrath is the same thing. For instance if we're walking downtown and somebody attacks my boy you will see the wrath of me right why because you are seeing my love in action I love my boy so much I will my wrath will spill over into the one who is attempting to harm him right you see that all the time look at the cross And you will see all of God's attributes active all at the same time. They're all one. Because of His love, He pours out His wrath against the sin that is destroying you upon His Son. You see, the love of God is given in terms of atonement. Well, you want to know what is the love of God? Well, you have to think in terms of atonement. For God so loved the world that He made atonement. This is God's love. It's not sentimental. It's active, actively warring against what hates you. You couldn't, you couldn't love righteousness without also hating unrighteousness, evil, and darkness. The Bible says the problem with people in the last days is that they would love darkness and resent the light. That's why they love, that's why they resent the light, because they love darkness. So we have to think of God in terms of one. Here, o Israel, the Lord your God is one God. He's not divided. Actually, that's <laughs> a wonderful thing to know. Because he's predictable. He's not like the parent who the child has to wonder like, which, which dad woke up this morning? The angry dad or the happy dad? <laughs> which dad am I going to deal with today? No, we know. God is always merciful because merciful is what He is. He cannot deny Himself. He is merciful always. Thank God you are in Christ because that tells you that He is forgiving always. That's who He is. God is angry at all times. (laughs) He's never not angry. He's never... Because that's who He is. He cannot one day wink at sin and the other day get angry at it. God is always pouring His wrath out on injustice, darkness, and sin. Always. That's why you know, thank God we're in Christ. Amen? Because <laughs> all of God's wrath was poured out in Christ. Now, his wrath is not him throwing a tantrum. His wrath is him being just in the face of unrighteousness. Let me say that again, because oftentimes people say, oh, God's not an angry God. But you've got to prove that out of the Bible first. Not implicitly, but explicitly. In other words, don't don't read into something in order to prove that he's no longer ever angry. Of course he is. How would God not be wrathful towards sin? Right? Sin kindles his anger every single time. But it causes him to act. He's never not acting in the face of sin. He always acts in the face of sin. In the Old Testament, we see people would die because of sin. Now, We still die because of sin. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd live forever. So God is always the same. And you have to, you have to embrace it simply because it's not, reformed it's not a reformed thing. It's a biblical thing. Because there's no possible way of proving that God no longer acts towards sin. He always does. And He doesn't su- suddenly now act kindly towards sin. Now, He doesn't treat you as your sins deserve because the wrath against your sins poured out on Christ so we have to see God as one and he never changes and that is what's so beautiful about biblical theology you see he's this this doctrine of divine simplicity not only says that God is the same because he is love he is just he is kindness he is merciful that's who He is at all times. And all those attributes of his are all connected. They're actually one and the same. But it also shows us that He is one in three, and He is three in one always. Every part of the Godhead was involved with the creation in Genesis. The Spirit of God was hovering. God spoke. Jesus spoke created that's the first creation and then in the new creation which is you by the way (laughs) God chose the Holy Spirit draws and Jesus redeems it doesn't matter what God does it's always within the triune effort this is important because sometimes I'll give you an example Because people don't understand divine simplicity that it is, in fact, a biblical doctrine, what they do is they'll become inconsistent with how they read read the Bible. One example is there's such a thing as open open theology or open theists. These people believe that what God does is he stands outside of this time continuum, and he stands and he's looking at what Jimmy is going to do throughout his life. And then when God sees, oh, Jimmy is going to walk out into an altar call, he's going to go forward that one night with the evangelist after he raised his hand and then Jimmy's going to pray. Wow, look at that. Jimmy just, Jimmy just decided to follow me. Oh, well, wonderful. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to the beginning of time and I'm going to write his name in the Lamb's Book of Life and I'm going I'm to choose him because he chose me. Well, what what just happened there? Because people don't understand divine simplicity, they can interpret scriptures how it would philosophically make sense to them, forgetting that God is in fact not just just, not just holy, not just mighty or sovereign or supreme, but He's also all-knowing. He's omniscient. That is who He is. And if God is omniscient, then you cannot read scriptures as if God is standing outside learning to see what David Akathera is one day going to do. Oh, I see. Wow. He just chose me. Praise God, says Jesus. And he writes David's name down in the book of life. Because God, if he is all-knowing, well, then he is never learning What could he learn if he already knows everything? Are you following me? So it's important for us to understand that omniscience is, you need to understand God is omniscient as you read through scriptures. And he's always omniscient. He's not sometimes learning new stuff all the time. He's out there going like, what? (laughs) That little Adolf, I should have, I should have taken care of him long before he grew up. (laughs) Unbelievable what he did. God's not learning. He's omniscient. And only if you're inconsistent could you be an open theist. Because sometimes he knows everything, and then other times he doesn't. And we can't read the Bible that way. So when you open up your Bible, you have to read your Bible knowing who God is and that He's always like that. And when you read that He was wrathful, don't read that as in any other way that He is in some way loving. Oh, I thought He was good. I know, that is Him being good. Are you following what I'm saying? So many people, they look at, they read through the Bible and they go like, God is so cruel because they don't understand this is God being good. You might not understand how that works. But that's a mystery. He is being good somehow, some way, and one day you will understand all things. And so we see in this scripture that Jesus said, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I don't know about you, but I've always read that (laughs) glorify, glorify, what even does this mean? Now we talked about for you to glorify God, means for you to reflect who he is and if you want to reflect who he is you have to grow in character as he is and you have to start making decisions and walk through life as he would have in the decisions that you make in other words you have to imitate your father and when you imitate your father when you become holy as he is you are glorifying him. make sense you look at a young boy and you go like man is that his dad (laughs) and I see when you start imitating God you are glorifying God and here, however here's a different way of glorifying and that is Jesus saying glorify your son so that your son will glorify you and I was wondering what does this mean How is Jesus glorified? Well, think about it. Moses prophesied about the coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, God promised the snake that the woman's seed will crush his head, right? And so there was the first promise of a coming Messiah. Moses promised the coming Messiah. The prophets promised the coming Messiah. John comes and says, behold, the Lamb of God and so everybody's waiting for this coming Messiah. And then Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Oh, so it's you, huh? All the, peop- all the people that were raised with him, all the kids on the block was like, <laughs> this is the Messiah? <laughs> I always knew there was something wrong with him. Such a goody two-shoes. <laughs> and then Jesus says, now the hour has come. Glorify your son so he may glorify you. Here we see Jesus glorified when all that was promised about Him is revealed in Him, proving that He is the one history has been waiting for. This is when He's revealed as, yes, He is the divine Son, as Isaiah chapter 53 promised. Detail after detail, nails through hands, robe, Lots been cast for. Bones, not broken. Amazing. Yes, He is the one who's fulfilling all of what's been said about the coming one. He's been glorified. He's been revealed. Just like you glorify God when you reveal His attributes by becoming as He is and imitating Him. Just like you revealing who God is by not lying, by being honest, And all of the above, being a person of character, having the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, you act like the Spirit would have. You are glorifying God in the same way God is revealed when you reflect Him. So here Jesus is being revealed because these things are happening that were prophesied of Him a long time ago. Yes, He's been revealed as the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. Therefore, He's been glorified. He's been revealed as the Savior of the world. He's been glorified. Yes, He's revealed as the conquering King, destroying sin and death. He is being glorified. He is revealed as the glorious Lord of all. All authority was given to Him in heaven and on earth right there. And this is how He's glorified. And God the Father is glorified because the Son is because of divine simplicity. The truth about Christ is ultimately revealed and sealed by His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Therefore, when Jesus said, it is time for Him to be glorified, He was saying, it is time for me to be crucified, buried, and resurrected to life again. And in doing so, God the Father would be glorified. So Jesus says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then, It says in verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom, what? You have given him. Glorify your son so that your son can give eternal life to all those you, God, have given to your son. Told you the book of John. It's just straight-up doctrine, isn't it? No history, just doctrine. <laughs> this is the biblical doctrine of election. Apparently, God gave some to Jesus as a gift, and then Jesus needs to be glorified, in other words, crucified, buried, and risen and risen from the dead in order to give eternal life to those the Father had given Him. So He's glorified in that way, so that the gift he received can be redeemed. Make sense? Am I reading into it, or am I, is this what it says? Again, let me say again. i uh, read the whole portion. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. For what purpose? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. this is the reading of what it says it's actually not saying anything other than what it says I'm not adding a word this is the biblical doctrine of election it is clear that Jesus came to redeem those whom the father had given him as a gift the doctrine of election is in fact not implicit it is explicit and we're going to talk more about it in the future but this is a way to actually read anything and understand anything especially the Bible If you're reading a book, there's a portion you don't understand in the book. Usually the whole story helps you understand the portion you missed. You watch a movie that way. But you read the Bible this way. The Bible interprets the Bible way more accurate than you could interpret the Bible. So when you find a passage that's not completely explicit, it's kind of like vague, you have to read into stuff in order to pull stuff out of it and, and, and assume this is what it could mean. Well, the way to interpret that passage of Scripture, the implicit, what you're implying, is by finding an explicit portion of Scriptures. In other words, where the Bible is clear on the subject, where it is clear, you take that and you say, okay, well, that's what this means. I'm not going to try and come up with a doctrine on something that I am... I think it implies, no, 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 we come up with what it clearly says. So in other words, you identify or you interpret the unclear with the clear. And so there's nothing unclear here. It's the biblical doctrine of election. It is not just here, it's explicitly stated elsewhere. John 15:16, 16. John 16:19, 16, Acts 13, 48, Romans 8, 29. 30, 31, 32, and 33, Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 6, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, Titus 1, verse 1, 1 Peter 1, verse 1 and 2. It's explicitly explained elsewhere. This doctrine of election is not a reformed thing. It is an explicitly biblical explanation of God's way of working and you have to become a theological contortionist in order to worm your way out of what the scriptures explicitly says you go, like well, it doesn't make sense well philosophically it doesn't make sense you mean to say that god chose a few gave those to christ and said die for them and then he did well i wouldn't have done that if i was god i'd do i just do it very very differently because uh, my heart bleeds for all people everywhere. Well, we should have made you God. <laughs> I think you would have done a much better job than God. In fact, that's what you're saying when you say that. You think you, you're gooder than him. It says <laughs> Why? Then John 17, verse 3. Can I have my, my phone, please? Thank you. John 17, verse 3 says, thank you. Because we've got to get through to 19. <laughs> so I, need, I need my watch. It's okay. We'll get there. Don't worry. And you're going to love it. <laughs> you're going to love it. <laughs> you better. <laughs> verse 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, divine simplicity, whom you have sent. You see, the term eternal life is referred to ten times in the Gospel of John. Eight out of those ten times, it is translated as everlasting life. Eternal life does not only refer to a span of time, but it refers to a quality of life Life as God has life. For a believer, this life is experienced even before heaven is reached. They already start experiencing some of that everlasting life in span and in quality as God has life. You are in Christ, and therefore you already have eternal life. You actually don't die. You sleep. You throw off what is fading, because you're taking on that which will never fade. You are going from a level of life to another level of life. When some, this is the only life they'll ever have because they go from a level of death to a deeper level of death. But not so you. You are in Christ. Isn't that something to be grateful for, thankful for? Amen. This is the life of God. That already exists inside of every single believer, but not yet fully manifest until, of course, that resurrection takes place. In John 17, verse 6 through 10, it says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. There you go again. Apparently, again, he wants to make sure we understand. Why? I don't know. Ask John when you see him one day. But here he goes again. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Not the whole world, but those out of the world that you gave me, I manifested your name to them. Then it says, yours they were, and you gave them to me. There he goes again. Most translations translate that. They were yours, and you gave them to me. It's important. They were yours, God. Then you gave them to me, and I redeemed them. So those God redeems always belong to God. I've often wondered. Just food for thought, okay? I don't have the answer to this. But you can read into it if you want. When, Satan, when God spoke to Satan and he says, Your seed and this woman's seed will be at enmity. And then your seed will bruise the heel, but he will crush your head. Now, we understand God's seed that came from from Eve, but who's Satan's seed? I don't know. I don't know. But here he says, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. In other words, they were yours, these people. And then you gave them to me. Again, we see the elect who belonged to God before time. They were given to Christ as a gift. It says, and they have kept your word. Those you gave me, they have kept your word. Wow. The sure sign of the elect is that they keep God's word, period. We see Jesus also says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He didn't threaten them and say, hey, 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 if you love me, you'll do what I say. He didn't say that. He was making not a threat, but a distinction. He was saying, if you love me, what will happen is you will end up keeping my word. Because everybody that is born of the Spirit actually obeys God. That's why 1st, 2nd, 3rd John talks so much about, if you're born a God, you can't keep sinning. You simply can't. Now, I'm not saying you don't, but you can't continue in it. It's like you can't just sign yourself up and say, I'm going to live in this kind of sin and neck." Now, if you do fall, you have sleepless nights. You hate your sin. You can't continue in it because you're a new creature. So we see the sure sign of the elect is that they keep God's word. That means two things. They know God's word and they submit to the word they know. Verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. I can just hear (laughs) all all the self-righteous guys like, wait a minute. He should be praying for everybody. I would have if I was him. I'd make a better God than he. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the whole world but for those whom you have given me. Why? For they are yours. It's almost like it's the first time I've ever read John. Again, Jesus points out that there are those whom the Father gave to Him in order to redeem. And then reaffirms that those given to Him originally Belong to God anyhow. Verse 10. All mine are yours, Jesus says. All yours are mine. Divine simplicity. And I am glorified in them. I'm dying on the cross for them. I'm being buried for them. They're dying with me. And when I rise from the dead after I conquer death, they rise with me. I'm glorified in them. Now, I want to show you something. The statement in verse 17, they were yours, is a strong affirmation that before conversion, before your conversion, the elect belonged to God before time. Why? Because Ephesians 1.4 shows us very clearly that the chosen were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before time, God chose. You go like, okay, wait, how's this possible? Oh, it gets more mysterious. It gets even further beyond what you can wrap your mind around. Watch this. In in Revelation chapter 13, 5 and 8, it actually shows that before the foundation of the world, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me read it to you from verse 5 through 8. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. I remember, we talked about symbols and all these different fig- uh, figures of speech and literary devices in first and second year Bible school. And we, we learned about the beast being godless government. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name in His dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war. Who allows the beast to make war? It says, it was allowed. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God allowing it. It says, and it was allowed... To make war on the saints and to conquer them. Wow. To conquer the saints. Think about all the blood that has been shed by tyrants throughout Christian history. Think about that. Governments rise up and slaughter Christians. And they were allowed to do so. It says right here, And authority was given to the beast to that tyrannical government over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Comma. Everyone. Now it's talking about everybody will worship it. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Who are these who will worship it? Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of life. Therefore, those whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world did not and will not ever worship a tyrannical government. That's why. I love that statement. I believe it was John Knox. He says something in, 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 in overthrowing, overthrowing tyrants is you're doing God's will, <laughs> something like that. Uh, you know, uh, the very first creed or declaration that the early church had was Jesus is Lord. Why? Because Caesar declared himself as Lord and they, they disagreed. They go, like, I'm sorry, we have a higher authority than yours. Well, why do you think they were going after the Christians? Because the Christians wouldn't accept that there was an authority that, elevated itself above their Lord and King Jesus. So they believed Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And that was their creed that they lived by. And here we see those who worshipped the beast were those whose names were not written in the book of life before the foundation of the earth. Let me read that again. Verse 8, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written, before the foundation of the world in the book of life in other words God gave Jesus his bride as a gift really? yes this gift consists of all those who belong to the father even before he gave them really that's what it says when did he do this? before the foundations of the world and how do we know who who they are well their names in the book of life go and read it for yourself When was it written there? Before the foundations of the world. Now you might go, wow, wait a minute. No, this is too strange. I feel like I'm reading Narnia (laughs) or something. We have to understand that there are certain mysteries regarding God's eternal purposes. There are certain mysteries regarding God's secret counsel. Now the Bible speaks of mystery, and it speaks of God's secret counsel, and you can bet your bottom dollar, if it's a mystery, and if it's a secret counsel, then it's secret. Oh, well, I know the secret. Well, then it's no longer a secret if you knew it. <laughs> well, I know what God meant right th- Well, then it wouldn't be a mystery, would it? <laughs> they are mysteries, which means they do not get, we do not get to understand this. But I, I can give you more mysteries, can I? Here's one. God loves you. I have a question. Why? (laughs) That's a mystery, I don't know. (laughs) Here's another one. Evidently, God chose you. Do you have any reason why? It's a mystery. You do not know, and you won't know. Maybe in that day you will. But God's mysteries are not for me to know. Otherwise, they would no longer be a mystery. His secret counsel is not for me to know. Otherwise, it wouldn't be secret. So what are they? They are, are in fact, opportunities for me to trust that God always does that that which is right. Why did the Second World War have to happen? I love it. Every time something happens, newspapers, where was God? Yeah, right there. (laughs) Where was God when this happened? I thought he was God of love. He is. Divine simplicity, remember? I couldn't love my child if I didn't hate child abuse. As a matter of fact, you only love children as much as what you hate, child abuse. That's how much you love children. And God only hates darkness as much, or God is only as holy as much as what He hates, darkness. And immorality. If he was playing around with that kind of stuff, he wouldn't be completely holy. If there was darkness within his light, he wouldn't be pure light. So there are these mysteries, these secrets, these unknown components within what we are reading, explicitly within the book of John, which give us opportunity to trust God as always good. I don't know. Can't, I can't unravel that spaghetti bowl, but I can tell you, that's good. That is God's goodness. This also gives me opportunity to be humbled with gratitude because of what He did for me. Me, the undeserving one. That's what makes biblical doctrine so beautiful. Because nobody accurately translates or interprets the Bible and walks away not humbled and broken before God. Nobody. If somebody walks away after reading the Bible thinking more of themselves, not less, you know, elevated within themselves. If somebody walks away, more puffed up. They didn't read what it actually said. The Bible says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Now he's praying to the father and he's praying about his disciples and he says God I don't pray that you take them out of this world many people live like that they're basically living waiting for Jesus to come and just take me out of here take me out of here take, take us out of here it's like the last helicopter out of Vietnam just can I make that helicopter please I just want out well he's praying the opposite he says I do not ask that you take them out of the world but I do ask this that you keep them from the evil one. Even though Jesus knew that the world would hate His disciples because they hated Him, He did not ask for His disciples to be protected from physical harm. Evidently not. Like every single one of them got martyred to death, and, except for John, who died in a prison. He, said, he didn't pray for their physical so that they would not be physically harmed or that they wouldn't have social conflict. I always crack up these people who believe that the gospel is in fact a social issue. He didn't pray so that they won't have any more social conflict, but rather that they be kept from the evil one. Hmm. Satan? Well, the deception of Satan. In other words, he's praying that they will be kept from being morally corrupted by the world that was now morally corrupted. Keep them from this corrupted world's corrupting ways. Why do we know this? Because, you see, that's implicitly implicitly stated there. Because the next verse is an explicit explanation of what he's saying there. He said... I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Jesus does not pray for His disciples' relational well-being. He does not pray for His disciples' financial prosperity. He prays for their sanctification. He didn't pray that they would find happiness... That's all I want for them one day is that they will be happy. He didn't pray that for his disciples. He prayed that they will be holy. That they won't be corrupted in this world that they are in. That they will keep the faith. And then he ends with this. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. I'm closing with this. Here Jesus teaches us on the process of growing in holiness. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Wow. Amazing. How humanity has this proclivity towards attempting to eliminate some of God's word and then add stuff else to it. It's almost like the natural thing man wants to do. All you have to do is, um, you know, Watch, uh, what's that movie that I like to watch? Tom Hanks in it? No. (laughs) Da Vinci Code, thanks. Not Forrest Gump. I like Forrest Gump too, but (laughs) Da Vinci Code. Man, are people intrigued by this stuff. The Gospel of Thomas. Have you ever? Have you ever read that? basically it ends up stating that unless woman becomes men, unless a woman becomes a man, not fit for the kingdom of God. Go read it. It's so, uh, but people are so intrigued by the idea, like, well, oh, it must be. It must be. It was written long after Thomas, but it was given the name of Thomas because that's the only possible way to give it credibility. It was written in the second century. Thomas died in the first century. Point is, Jesus is saying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Here Jesus teaches us on the process of growing in holiness. We observe a few things. It is God who sanctifies. It is God who sanctifies. Otherwise, Jesus would not have asked God to sanctify his disciples. And actually, that's good news to you and me, because how many of you have attempted to... (laughs) fix something about yourself and you're having a hard time. Can I see a show of hands? Anybody? Trying to fix something about yourself you're having a hard time. Well, Jesus gives us directives here. He's asking the Father to sanctify them because He knew they couldn't do it themselves. So if you're married, you have a spouse, just ask God to sanctify (laughs) your spouse. If you have a neighbor and your neighbor needs to be sanctified, that's how you ask God and then he says, Your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. It is God who sanctifies. Number one, God sanctifies by means of truth, biblical, scriptural truth. Truth was God's chosen way of sanctifying you and me. Not the truth about a political party, no, the truth about the word of God is the way by which we are sanctified. And then it says, God's word is that truth. That means when I submit to his word is when I'm sanctified. When I'm sanctified is when I'm living a holy life. So my conclusion here today is no scripture, no truth. No truth, no sanctification. No sanctification, no holiness. Ah, I want to be holy. Yeah, there's a way to get there no scripture, no truth, no truth, no sanctification, no sanctification, no holiness. However, when I study the Word of God daily, consistently, and I study it in order to hear what God is saying instead of studying in a way for me to say what I want it to say, if I'm truly studying God's Word honestly, I'm actually studying God. And when I submit to God's Word, I'm actually submitting to God's will, to God's way. I'm submitting to God Himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. Lord, thank You for the book of John. Thank You for bringing us to our knees knowing that we were always yours we've always been yours and that you took us and you gave us to Christ to redeem thank you for choosing us to be the bride thank you for giving us your truth your word so that we can be sanctified by that truth so we can become more like you we can become holy and as we are in this process of being sanctified we are being saved we were saved when Christ redeemed us at the cross we are being saved as we are being sanctified by truth and we will be saved when we are glorified with you, resurrected on the other side of this life. In Jesus' name, amen.